with my background is in philosophy and primarily the phenomenology of the body is kind of my subspecialty. So what I'm interested in is lived experience and I've done a lot of writing on shame and body shame and the lived experience of being a shamed body or a shamed subjectivity. Um, and in the context of writing about body shame, I started to think and write about cosmetic surgery and um, I looked at the dynamics of shame in clinical encounters in, in the context of um, gendered relations between clinicians and, and um, women in particular who uh, seek out cosmetic surgery. And then that led me to more general questions around shame in clinical encounters. So what I'm going to present today um, is essentially an account of the phenomenology of um, shame and then situating that within the context of the clinical encounter. Um, so when broaching the question of shame in medicine in the present day, uh, it is impossible, especially in a UK context, um, to not think of the Channel 4 TV series, Embarrassing Bodies. This compelling and popular TV series has aired on Channel 4 since 2007, and its main objective is to aid people who have a wide range of illnesses and bodily conditions that they are too embarrassed to show to their doctors um, or to their general practitioners. What Embarrassing Bodies has made explicit through the confessional formula of reality television is that shame about the body and illness is a powerful force when considering the effectiveness of medical treatment. The overwhelming popularity and success of this TV series makes evident the fact that shame, embarrassment, and other self-conscious or negative self-conscious emotions often prevent individuals from seeking medical treatment, from following through with medical, um, sorry, from seeking medical attention from following through with medical treatments and from accurately narrating and disclosing symptoms and histories. And I should say that um, I published an article more or less based on this talk and, um, and I've, I've gotten some very strong feedback from general practitioners who, who disagree with my portrayal of embarrassing bodies, so I'm interested to, to see what people think uh, about how I frame um, this argument using this television show. So shame in general um, arises when one is concerned with how one is seen and judged by others. So it is a self-conscious emotion in that the object of shame is oneself. So we feel ashamed when we are perceived by others, whether, whether they are present or imagined, as doing or being something that we consider inappropriate, untoward, deviant, or immoral, or abnormal. Shame is a difficult and often devastating emotion. It goes to the core of an individual and their identity, making them feel exposed, inferior, and deficient. It threatens social bonds and one's feelings of belonging and acceptance. So within the face-to-face -face drama of the clinical encounter, it has been suggested that shame is um, the elephant in the room, to use Davidoff's formulation. Although it is ubiquitous and ever-present, um, it is something so big and disturbing that we don't even see it, or we do our very best to avoid it. In fact, shame in, the med in medical practice often remains unspoken, hidden, or oppressed. And this is reflected in the paucity of literature on shame um, in medicine or in discussions of the clinical encounter, even in the era of embarrassing bodies. Since Aaron Lazar's 1987 article, Shame and Humiliation in the Medical Encounter, there have only been a handful of articles, blog postings, and editorials addressing shame as a force to be considered within practice. Um, so it is not surprising that illness and failings of the physical body are a source of shame. In fact, shame is intimately linked with the body and the, and the exposure of the body. 
It is etymologically, etymologically and historically connected with the body and nakedness, particularly the desire to conceal one's nakedness. In the biblical story Genesis, after the fall, Adam and Eve become aware of their naked state and cover themselves because they become ashamed of their nudity. In this story, the very origin of humanity is intimately linked with shame about the body. In fact, in English, the word shame comes from a pre-Teutonic word meaning to cover, where covering oneself is considered the natural expression of shame. According to the philosopher Max Scheller, um, nakedness has been traditionally associated with shame, and we seek to cover our se sexual organs because they are symbolic of our animality, mortality, and inherent vulnerability. Um, historically, in Western culture, humanity has attempted to distance itself from the physical body and its animal nature has been shunned and repressed. So humans have tra tra traditionally transcended their, tra sorry, celebrated their transcendence, not their flesh. As such, shame about the body is particularly powerful in that it disrupts our illusion of transcendence, the notion that we are more than merely animals, and reveals our undeniable and imperfect corporeality. So the body symbolizes our vulnerability, our neediness, and our ultimate lack of control over our own mortality. In experiences of shame, um, and in particular body shame, we feel exposed and self-conscious. We become aware of our inherent vulnerability and see ourselves as having failed or as being flawed in some crucial way. And along with this self-consciousness is an extremely negative and pa painful emotional response which is intimately linked to one's own feelings about oneself. So I'll, I'll just briefly go into a little bit of the phenomenology of shame. So Gershwin, uh, sorry, Gershwin Kaufman, um, psychologist who wrote about shame extensively, described shame as a wound made from the inside by an unseen hand, which leads to feeling fundamentally deficient as individuals, diseased, defective. He asserts that to experience shame is to experience the very essence or heart of the self is wanting. Shame is inevitably alienating, isolating, and deeply disturbing. And, and to go back to Paul's distinction between shame and guilt, um, where shame touches the core of oneself or one's sense of identity, um, guilt, in contrast, is commonly um, characterized in this way, that guilt, um, in contrast, would um, reflect on someone's actions um, rather than the core of themselves, so that, that there's quite a separation between how shame and guilt are characterized. Um, so typically in shame, along with an extremely negative emotion that is usually directed towards one's own sense of self or identity, there is a feeling of being paralyzed or frozen in an acute moment of visibility. So one becomes acutely self-conscious of oneself, and the flow of the situation that one is in becomes disrupted in this moment of self-consciousness. And Gershwin um, Kaufman uses the term binding um, in his book, The Psychology of Shame, to describe this experience. So binding involves an inter interruption or disturbance in the smooth functioning of the self, whether that's through action or cognition. Um, or interaction. He writes, exposure, so talking about binding, exposure can interrupt movement, bind speech, and make eye contact intolerable. Shame paralyzes the self. The subject is so overcome with the physical symptoms of shame that there is a disruption of, of the flow of bodily and mental activity. And in this experience, there is this desire to conceal, or for concealment, for hiding, for secrecy, or to shrink away from others and from the situation. So one feels exposed to anyone present, and this leads to a paralyzing inner scrutiny, a moment of extreme self-consciousness. Um, so what is particularly interesting about shame is that these symptoms as outward displays of shame are themselves taboo. So revealing that one is experiencing shame through blushing or stuttering or um, 
any other physical manifestation of the affect or emotion is itself shameful. Um, as a result, shame symptoms provoke a shame spiral that, uh, or a loop, as it's sometimes called, in which when shame arises, it incites more shame about the shame. Um, so shame as such is an iterated emotion. Its occurrence leads to an intensification or multiplication of itself. Um, in addition, shame has a particular, uh, a peculiar contagious character. Um, so all participants <coughs> in a particular situation may experience feelings of embarrassment or shame when one person in that situation is overcome with the feelings themselves. Um, so in this way, shame cannot be considered to be an experience with consequences that are limited just to an individual subject. Instead, it has this necessary social dimension in that it changes the character of the situation in which it has occurred, and in addition can infect others. What would otherwise have been a, a smooth social encounter um, becomes infused with awkwardness and uncertainty about social cues and roles, and, and this goes back to what Janice was discussing earlier in talking about um, different types of interaction rituals. So to avoid discomfort, people go out of their way to avoid shame, even or even mentioning um, past instances of shame. Um, on behalf of themselves and of others, and even when this avoidance means hurting or harming the self. So <clears throat> this tendency, um, I'll go back to that in a second, this tendency to avoid body shame and potentially shameful exposure is of particular re relevance um, when considering the dynamics of the clinical encounter where metaphoric and literal exposure of the physical body is the centerpiece around which the drama of the clinic revolves. Exposure of the body it is, as, as I noted above, inherently shameful in our cultural context, and it is not at all surprising that there is a stigma attached to instances of disease and illness where the body is not only exposed and vulnerable, but is also cast as failing and deficient. So as um, Aaron Lazar notes in his sort of seminal article from 1987, he says, in the medical setting, patients may experience physical or psychological um, limitations as defects inadequacies or shortcomings that assault various treasured images of the self, youth, beauty, strength, stamina, dexterity, self-control, independence, and mental composure, or sorry, competence. This sense of inadequacy further jeopardizes social roles that give meaning and self-respect to patients' lives. So consider here now the response of Jenny Diskey to a terminal cancer diagnosis as very recently recounted in the London Review of Books. Um, this late last year, she writes, the future flashed before my eyes in all its preordained banality. Embarrassment at first to the exclusion of all other feelings. But embarrassment curled at the edges with a weariness, the sort that comes over you when you are set on track by something outside your control. The flood of embarrassment, much more powerful than alarm or fear, that engulfed and mortified me at finding myself set firmly on that particular well-traveled road. Um, so I realize there's some terminological sloppiness between the terms of embarrassment and shame, and I can discuss the difference between those later if you like. So that embarrassment and shame arises for Disky before fear or alarm in, face, uh, in the face of a terminal diagnosis and the threat of imminent death is testimony to how powerful shame and the concomitant fear of social stigma and loss of self-respect that comes with illness um, can be. Um, Rousseau, in the Confessions, the characterizes the power of shame thusly. He, he writes, I did not fear punishment, but I dreaded shame. I dreaded it more than death, more than the crime, more than all the world. I would have barely hid myself in the center of the earth. <clears throat> Invincible shame bore down on every other sentiment. 
potential threats to social bonds and hence to and hence the potential to not be recognized within one social group um, through shame experiences are cause for significant distress. Um, as Gerhard Piers notes, um, behind the feeling of shame stands not the fear of hatred, but the fear of contempt, which on an even deeper level of the unconscious spells fear of abandonment, the, the death by emotional, um, emotional starvation. Hence, the fear of being ostracized is likened to death by some thinkers, social death. But this means is by no means, oh, sorry, this association is by no means arbitrary nor extreme, as there are very high stakes involved in breaching social norms and when, when one's sense of belonging and recognition are compromised. And Goffman's seminal work on shame, stigma, notes on the management of spoiled identity, which has been mentioned several times today, um, opens with a letter to the agony aunt. Um, Miss Lonely Heart, so this is the kind of epigraph in the book. It's written by a 16-year-old girl born without a nose, so she has severe facial disfigurement, and the, the letter recounts how she is completely ostracized from social life as a result of her bodily defect. Even her parents find it difficult to accept her, and she ends the letter desperately asking if suicide is her only option. And as Jane Megan Northrup notes in her work about cosmetic surgery and shame, in cases of stigma and the breaching of societal norms, social death and actual death are in imminently convergent. And Lazar makes a similar point. Um, for some patients in certain clinical situations, death is preferable to disfiguring treatment. As a result, avoiding potential instances of shame and stigma um, through ignoring illness, avoiding treatment, or concealing symptoms can feel like a life-saving measure. Um, in short, fear, shame, and its concomitant social stigma um, leads to avoidance and silence. Um, preliminary empirical results corroborate, corroborate rather, this finding, wherein Harris and Darby's recent and arguably um, unique study on shame in physician-patient interactions, um, but they found that in a study of over 900 adults, over 50% reported that shame had been a component of an interaction with a physician. Furthermore, over 45% of those individuals reported that they stopped seeing the physician and or lied to the physician. Despite the difficulty in relying on testimony in empirical work that deals with affects that are inherently difficult to talk about and are often repressed or bypassed, it is clear from this study and from ample anecdotal evidence that the medical encounter is unavoidably emotion-laden and that shame is frequently, if not inevitably, a feature of the clinical encounter. Um, due to the inherent vulnerability of the body coupled with the stigma that is often attached to illness. This shame is compounded in the clinical context through the necessity for physical and personal exposure. Um, as Lazar notes, once in the examining room, patients must reveal personal information about their weaknesses, expose their bodies, place themselves in undignified postures, and accept the handling, accept handling of their bodies, including intrusion into orifices. In fact, it is acknowledged that medical procedures that are intimate in nature or that involve reproductive or excretory functions are a source of anxiety and shame, and there's literature, many, much literature support that. And there's um, literature that demonstrates that areas of health that involve private and socially sensitive parts of the body or bodily functions are a clear source of embarrassment and shame and can act as a barrier to seeking medical assistance, um, that should say assistance, even when there is concern about serious symptoms. Furthermore, the potential for shame in the clinical encounter is intimately linked to one's perceived responsibility or blameworthiness um, for an illness due to personality traits or health-related behaviors, so echoing some of the concerns that came up in Paul and Becky's talks earlier. 
Um, in fact, human beings have a long history of linking illness and bodily conditions with negative personal attributes, and furthermore, doing so in order to marginalize certain groups. This logic extends to health and illness, where um, a characterological disposition, uh, to use Susan Sontag's term, can be utilized to explain why one has fallen ill. Writing about the stigma of cancer, Sontag argues that cancer is regarded as a disease to which the physically, sorry, the psychically defeated, the inexpressive, the repressed, especially those who have repressed anger or sexual feelings, are particularly prone. In short, in the case of cancer, the illness has historically been seen to arise from one's own personal failing, and as a result can be judged or can be regarded as justly deserved, a form of defined punishment or karmic retribution, or, or however you want to um, frame it. In this vein, cancer has been characterized as a curse, a punishment, a source, and a source of embarrassment, rather than a straightforward physical condition for which the individual is not blameworthy. As the illness in question is seen to be negative, a negative and defining feature of the self, the body bears or is your moral failing. So in, in fact, it is imported, or sorry, reported in empirical work that when patients are concerned with feeling judged or shamed by their physician for their health-related behavior, then this can lead to avoidance of clinical settings. In our cultural context, which values autonomy, discipline, and self-restraint, illnesses associated with alcoholism, addiction, sexual activity, and, or overeating are strongly stigmatized, and afflicted, afflicted individuals are made to feel ashamed for their supposed lack of self-control and weak will. And this, of course, is exacerbated in our contemporary um, medical culture that increasingly defines health and illness in terms of risk factors that are controllable by individuals' behavior and their capacity to make wise choices. Uh, the overarching sentiment being that everyone is capable of modifying and controlling their behavior and lifestyle and hence, therefore, responsible for their own risk factors. Um, and what this points to is a, a tendency um, to moralize about illness um, and the causes of illness, which we've discussed at length today already. Um, so this shifts the onus onto the individual who is responsible for achieving and maintaining his or her own health through increasingly commercialized practices involving diet, um, exercise, digi digital, digital rather, wearables, and other disciplinary lifestyle choices and practices. Um, there's plenty of literature um, regarding the use of stigma to motivate behavioral change with respect to lifestyle illnesses <coughs> such as lung cancer and obesity. Um, however, it seems clear that the more responsible an individual feels for the illness, especially if they perceive it to have arisen from a lack of self-control, the more potential for shame and avoidance. As a result, it is clear that moralizing and shaming within the clinical encounter must be managed carefully, if attempted at all. Of concern is the preliminary research that suggests that Shame itself can have a negative can have negative physiological um, and health outcomes. Um, in a study of HIV positive patients, shame and perceived threats to one's social bonds clearly correlated with disease progression and mortality. Encourage, encouraging doctors to exacerbate shame as a treatment or prevention strategy may in fact lead to further negative health outcomes. So within a clinical setting, the dynamics of shame are complex and multifaceted. As discussed above, the phenomenology of body shame results in a fear of exposure and a desire to conceal or for concealment or to conceal oneself, and this can lead to many potentially harmful behaviors such as dishonesty within the, the clinical encounter, avoidance of seeking medical attention, not following through with medical treatment, or even negative health, 
health outcomes as a result of the shame and stigma itself. So due to the inherent power, um, or sorry, due to the inherent imbalance of power in the clinical context, medical professionals are in a prime position to exacerbate um, or incite shame. Um, however, uh, and, and I actually, maybe in a previous version of this talk, had a, which I've given once before, had a, an example, an example of, about um, that kind of resonated with something that Catherine was talking about earlier in her talk about plastic surgeries and how plastic surgeons are actually in a position to point out other flaws that an individual may not yet be aware of, um, and in this way, sort of exacerbate or or, or multiply um, body shape. Anyway, but I'll leave that. Um, so, in my concluding remarks, I wanted to discuss, or I want to discuss how clinicians are also in a prime position to alleviate shame, and that this can be a very powerful and tangible force within um, clinical practice. So, as noted above, um, embarrassing bodies is in some sense, a testament to the fact that an acknowledgement of shame in the clinical context can be therapeutic. Embarrassing Bodies has, a, has had a marked mainstream impact in the UK in terms of, and, and in other countries where it has spread, I suppose, um, in terms of raising health awareness and destigmatizing in what are traditionally considered embarrassing body parts and medical conditions. In 2011, the Embarrassing Bodies website which features an autism test, an STI checker, a penis and breast gallery, and several, several other diagnostic tools, had over 100 million page views, and Channel 4 boasts um, that it saves the NHS um, precisely £283,000 a month. How they came up with that figure, I don't know. As a result of its on online resource. There are numerous testimonies from patients and doctors reporting that after watching the program, individuals were more likely to feel comfortable seeking out medical treatment, or identified a health concern that they had previously not been aware of. In fact, what Embarrassing Bodies demonstrates is that within the clinical context, the acknowledgement of body shame, along with the advice and attentions of a sympathetic medical expert, legitimates what might otherwise feel like a shameful, sorry, shameful and solitary preoccupation. And this can, in fact, have very positive positive, tangible impacts in terms of patient experience and the concomitant um, medical treatment and the success of that treatment. So the confessional formula of this show is, um, is in some sense testimony to how making shame public can in fact diffuse or even in some cases eliminate the negative impact of shame. And we see this in terms of the dynamics of identity politics, so converting gay shame into gay pride or how the civil rights movement also had these slogans like black is beautiful and black power. So it wasn't just about overcoming um, you know, inequalities on a social level, but also about individuals overcoming personal stigma um, and validating themselves through this kind of dialectic of converting shame into pride. Um, so there's a sort of similar dynamic in these sorts of confessional reality TV shows, which are all about public shaming and the spectacle of shame, and, and then how that's converted into some sort of um, pride or, or narcissism. So um, this insight is acknowledged in the work of clinical psychologists where it is argued that the only way to resolve shame is to talk about it. Acknowledging and publicly confessing one's shame has a cathartic effect. It dampens its negative affect and shifts the experience towards one of validation and, and recognition. As one doctor remarks, speaking about um, embarrassing bodies, um, they say, it, it makes people feel that these things can be openly discussed, that it's okay to go to your doctor and that you'll be treated with respect. 
However, revealing and acknowledging shame must occur within a receptive and safe context, otherwise the negative impact can be, uh, sorry, the impact can be negative, in that shame can be exacerbated or intensified rather than positive, where it, it can be diffused. And what embarrassing bodies makes evident is that when clinicians acknowledge body shame and its significance on an individual's experience, alongside treating the medical problem in question, it, it can in fact be therapeutic, or as anecdotal evidence, it hasn't actually to my knowledge, been any sustained empirical study of people who've been on the show and the effect it's had, but there's a lot, plenty of anecdotal evidence. So as one patient remarked after a televised embarrassing body consultation, um, that was so fantastic. He gave me the confidence to go back to my doctor, and yes, it's an embarrassing problem, but when you finally talk about it, you feel so much better. Rather than seeing illness as a personal individual failing, it becomes part of a, a diagnosis that can be dealt me with medically and objectively. So what the format of embarrassing body suggests is that making space for shame um, and acknowledging its power and existential and phenomenological significance in terms of patient experience and the dynamics within patient-clinician interaction can have important consequences um, in terms of the clinical encounter. That's all. Thank you. <laughs>